0: Chapter One of the Promised Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter One Within the Pale When I was a little girl, the world was divided into two parts namely, Polotsk, the place where I lived, and a strange land called Russia. All the little girls I knew lived in Polotsk, with their fathers and mothers and friends. Russia was the place where one's father went on business. It was so far off, and so many bad things happened there, that one's mother and grandmother and grown-up aunts cried at the railroad station, and one was expected to be sad and quiet for the rest of the day, when the father departed for Russia. After a while there came to my knowledge the existence of another division, a region intermediate between Polotsk and Russia, It seemed there was a place called Vitebsk, and one called Vilna, and Riga, and some others. From those places came photographs of uncles and cousins one had never seen, and letters, and sometimes the uncles themselves. These uncles were just like people in Polotsk. The people in Russia, one understood, were very different. In answer to one's questions, the visiting uncles said all sorts of silly things, to make everybody laugh and so one never found out why Vitebsk and Vilna, since they were not Polotsk, were not as sad as Russia. Mother hardly cried at all when the uncles went away. One time, when I was about eight years old, one of my grown-up cousins went to Vitebsk. Everybody went to see her off, but I didn't. I went with her. I was put on the train, with my best dress tied up in a bandana, and I stayed on the train for hours and hours, and came to Vitebsk. I could not tell, as we rushed along, where the end of Polotsk was. There were a great many places on the way, with strange names, but it was very plain when we got to Vitebsk. The railroad station was a big place, much bigger than the one in Polotsk. Several trains came in at once, instead of only one. There was an immense buffet, with fruits and confections, and a place where books were sold. My cousin never let go my hand, on account of the crowd. Then we rode in a cab for ever so long, and I saw the most beautiful streets and shops and houses, much bigger and finer than any in Polotsk. We remained in Vitebsk several days, and I saw many wonderful things. But what gave me my one great surprise was something that wasn't new at all. It was the river, the river Dvina. Now the Divina is in Polotsk. All my life I had seen the Divina. How, then, could the Divina be in Vitebsk? My cousin and I had come on the train, but everybody knew that a train could go everywhere, even to Russia. It became clear to me that the Divina went on and on, like a railroad track, whereas I had always supposed that it stopped where Polatsk stopped. I had never seen the end of Polatsk. I meant to when I was bigger. But how could there be an end to Polatsk now? Polatsk was everything on both sides of the Divina, as all my life I had known, and the Divina, it now turned out, never broke off at all. It was very curious that the divina should remain the same, while Polatsk changed into Vitebsk. The mystery of this transmutation led to much fruitful thinking. The boundary between Polatsk and the rest of the world was not, as I had supposed, a physical barrier, like the fence which divided our garden from the street. The world went like this now. Polotsk, more Polatsk, more Polatsk, Vitebsk. And Vitebsk was not so different, only bigger and brighter and more crowded. And Vitebsk was not the end. The Divina and the railroad went on beyond Vitebsk, went on to Russia. Then was Russia more polacks? Was here also no dividing fence? How I wanted to see Russia! But very few people went there. When people went to Russia, it was a sign of trouble. Either they could not make a living at home, or they were drafted for the army, or they had a lawsuit. No, nobody went to Russia for pleasure." Why, in Russia lived the Tsar, and a great many cruel people, and in Russia were the dreadful prisons from which people never came back. Polotsk and Vitebsk were now bound together by the continuity of the earth, but between them and Russia a formidable barrier still interposed. I learned, as I grew older, that much as Polotsk disliked to go to Russia, even more did Russia object to letting Polotsk come. People from Polotsk were sometimes turned back before they had finished their business, and often they were cruelly treated on the way. It seemed there were certain places in Russia, St. Petersburg and Moscow and Kiev, where my father or my uncle or my neighbor must never come at all, no matter what important things invited them. The police would seize them and send them back to Polotsk, like wicked criminals, although they had never done any wrong. It was strange enough that my relatives should be treated like this, BUT AT LEAST THERE WAS THIS EXCUSE FOR SENDING THEM BACK TO POLOTSK, THAT THEY BELONGED THERE. FOR WHAT REASON WERE PEOPLE DRIVEN OUT OF ST. PETERSBURG AND MOSCOW WHO HAD THEIR HOMES IN THOSE CITIES, AND HAD NO OTHER PLACE TO GO? EVER SO MANY PEOPLE, MEN AND women AND EVEN CHILDREN, CAME TO POLOTSK, WHERE THEY HAD NO FRIENDS, WITH STORIES OF CRUEL TREATMENT IN RUSSIA, AND ALTHOUGH THEY WERE NOBODY'S RELATIVES, THEY WERE TAKEN IN AND HELPED, AND SET UP IN BUSINESS, LIKE UNFORTUNATES AFTER A FIRE. It was very strange that the Tsar and the police should want all Russia for themselves. It was a very big country. It took many days for a letter to reach one's father in Russia. Why might not everybody be there who wanted to? I do not know when I became old enough to understand. The truth was borne in on me a dozen times a day from the time I began to distinguish words from empty noises. My grandmother told me about it when she put me to bed at night. My parents told me about it when they gave me presents on holidays. My playmates told me when they drew me back into a corner of the gateway to let a policeman pass. Vanka, the little white-haired boy, told me all about it when he ran out of his mother's laundry on purpose to throw mud after me when I happened to pass. I heard about it during prayers, and when women quarreled in the marketplace, and sometimes, waking in the night, I heard my parents whisper it in the dark. There was no time in my life when I did not hear and see and feel the truth, the reason why Polotsk was cut off from the rest of Russia. It was the first lesson a little girl in Polotsk had to learn. But for a long while I did not understand. Then there came a time when I knew that Polotsk and Vitebsk and Vilna and some other places were grouped together as the Pale of Settlement, and within this area the Tsar commanded me to stay. WITH MY FATHER AND MOTHER AND FRIENDS, AND ALL OTHER PEOPLE LIKE US. WE MUST NOT BE FOUND OUTSIDE THE PALE, BECAUSE WE WERE JEWS. SO THERE WAS A FENCE AROUND POLOTSK AFTER ALL. THE WORLD WAS DIVIDED INTO JEWS AND GENTILES. THIS KNOWLEDGE CAME SO GRADUALLY THAT IT COULD NOT SHOCK ME. IT TRICKLED INTO MY CONSCIOUSNESS, DROP BY DROP. BY THE TIME I FULLY UNDERSTOOD THAT I WAS A PRISONER, THE shackles HAD GROWN FAMILIAR TO MY FLESH. The first time Vanka threw mud at me, I ran home and complained to my mother, who brushed off my dress, and said, quite resignedly, How can I help you, my poor child? Vanka is a Gentile. The Gentiles do as they like with us Jews. The next time Vanka abused me, I did not cry, but ran for shelter, saying to myself, Vanka is a Gentile. The third time, when Vanka spat on me, I wiped my face and thought nothing at all. I accepted ill-usage from the Gentiles, as one accepts the weather. The world was made in a certain way, and I had to live in it. Not quite all the Gentiles were like Vanka. Next door to us lived a Gentile family, which was very friendly. There was a girl as big as I, who never called me names, and gave me flowers from her father's garden. And there were the Parfins, of whom my grandfather rented his store. They treated us as if we were not Jews at all. ON OUR FESTIVAL DAYS THEY VISITED OUR HOUSE, AND BROUGHT US PRESENTS, CAREFULLY CHOOSING SUCH THINGS AS JEWISH CHILDREN MIGHT ACCEPT, AND THEY LIKED TO HAVE EVERYTHING EXPLAINED TO THEM, ABOUT THE WINE AND THE FRUIT and THE CANDLES, AND THEY EVEN TRIED TO SAY THE APPROPRIATE GREETINGS AND BLESSINGS IN HEBREW. MY FATHER USED TO SAY THAT IF ALL THE RUSSIANS WERE LIKE THE Parfins, THERE WOULD BE NO TROUBLE BETWEEN GENTILES AND JEWS, AND FEDORA PAVLOVNA, THE LANDLADY, WOULD REPLY THAT THE RUSSIAN PEOPLE WERE NOT TO BLAME it was the priests she said who taught the people to hate the jews of course she knew best as she was a very pious christian she never passed a church without crossing herself the gentiles were always crossing themselves when they went into a church and when they came out when they met a priest or passed an image in the street THE DIRTY BEGGARS ON THE CHURCH STEPS NEVER STOPPED CROSSING THEMSELVES, AND EVEN WHEN THEY STOOD ON THE CORNER OF A JEWISH STREET, AND RECEIVED ALMS FROM JEWISH PEOPLE, THEY CROSSED THEMSELVES AND MUMBLED CHRISTIAN PRAYERS. IN EVERY GENTILE HOUSE THERE WAS WHAT THEY CALLED AN ICON, WHICH WAS AN IMAGE OR PICTURE OF THE CHRISTIAN GOD, HUNG UP IN A CORNER, WITH A LIGHT ALWAYS BURNING BEFORE IT. IN FRONT OF THE ICON THE GENTILES SAID THEIR PRAYERS, ON THEIR KNEES, CROSSING THEMSELVES ALL THE TIME. I tried not to look in the corner where the icon was when I came into a Gentile house. I was afraid of the cross. Everybody was, in Polotsk, all the Jews, I mean. For it was the cross that made the priests, and the priests made our troubles, as even some Christians admitted. The Gentiles said that we had killed their god, which was absurd, as they never had a god, nothing but images. Besides, what they accused us of had happened so long ago. The Gentiles themselves said it was long ago. Everybody had been dead for ages who could have had anything to do with it. Yet they put up crosses everywhere, and wore them on their necks, on purpose to remind themselves of these false things, and they considered it pious to hate and abuse us, insisting that we had killed their God. To worship the cross, and to torment a Jew, was the same thing to them. That is why we feared the cross." Another thing the Gentiles said about us was that we used the blood of murdered Christian children at the Passover festival. Of course that was a wicked lie. It made me sick to think of such a thing. I knew everything that was done for Passover from the time I was a very little girl. The house was made clean and shining and holy, even in the corners where nobody ever looked. Vessels and dishes that were used all the year round were put away in the garret, and special vessels were brought out for the Passover week. I used to help unpack the new dishes, and find my own blue mug. When the fresh curtains were put up, and the white floors were uncovered, and everybody in the house put on new clothes, and I sat down to the feast in my new dress, I felt clean inside and out. And when I asked the four questions, about the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs, and the other things, and the family, reading from their books, answered me, did I not know all about the Passover, and what was on the table, and why? It was wicked of the Gentiles to tell lies about us. The youngest child in the house knew how Passover was kept. The Passover season, when we celebrated our deliverance from the land of Egypt, and felt so glad and thankful, as if it had only just happened, was the time our Gentile neighbors chose to remind us that Russia was another Egypt. That is what I heard people say, and it was true. It was not so bad in Polotsk, within the Pale, but in Russian cities— AND EVEN MORE IN THE COUNTRY DISTRICTS, WHERE JEWISH FAMILIES LIVE SCATTERED, BY SPECIAL PERMISSION OF THE POLICE, WHO WERE ALWAYS CHANGING THEIR MINDS ABOUT LETTING THEM STAY, THE GENTILES MADE THE PASSOVER A TIME OF HORROR FOR THE JEWS. SOMEBODY WOULD START UP THAT LIE ABOUT MURDERING CHRISTIAN CHILDREN, AND THE STUPID PEASANTS WOULD GET MAD ABOUT IT, AND FILL THEMSELVES WITH VODKA, AND SET OUT TO KILL THE JEWS. THEY ATTACKED THEM WITH KNIVES AND CLUBS AND scythes AND AXES, KILLED THEM OR TORTURED THEM, AND BURNED THEIR HOUSES. This was called a pogrom. Jews who escaped the pogroms came to Polotsk with wounds on them, and horrible, horrible stories, of little babies torn limb from limb before their mother's eyes. Only to hear these things made one sob and sob and choke with pain. People who saw such things never smiled any more, no matter how long they lived, and sometimes their hair turned white in a day, and some people became insane on the spot often we heard that the pogrom was led by a priest carrying a cross before the mob our enemies always held up the cross as the excuse of their cruelty to us i never was in an actual pogrom but there were times when it threatened us even in polotzk and in all my fearful imaginings as i hid in dark corners thinking of the horrible things the gentiles were going to do to me i saw the cross the cruel cross i remember a time when i thought a pogrom had broken out in our street AND I WONDERED THAT I DID NOT DIE OF FEAR. IT WAS SOME CHRISTIAN HOLIDAY, AND WE HAD BEEN WARNED BY THE POLICE TO KEEP INDOORS. GATES WERE LOCKED, SHUTTERS WERE BARRED. IF A CHILD CRIED, THE NURSE THREATENED TO GIVE IT TO THE PRIEST, WHO WOULD SOON BE PASSING BY. FEARFUL, AND YET CURIOUS, WE LOOKED THROUGH THE CRACKS IN THE SHUTTERS. WE SAW A PROCESSION OF PEASANTS AND TOWNSPEOPLE, LED BY A NUMBER OF PRIESTS, CARRYING CROSSES AND BANNERS AND IMAGES, and the place of honor was carried a casket containing a relic from the monastery in the outskirts of Polotsk. Once a year the Gentiles paraded with this relic, and on that occasion the streets were considered too holy for Jews to be about, and we lived in fear till the end of the day, knowing that the least disturbance might start a riot, and a riot lead to a pogrom. On the day when I saw the procession through a crack in the shutter, there were soldiers and police in the street. This was as usual, but I did not know it. I asked the nurse, who was pressing to the crack over my head, what the soldiers were for. Thoughtlessly she answered me, in case of a pogrom. Yes, there were the crosses and the priests and the mob. The church bells were pealing their loudest. Everything was ready. The Gentiles were going to tear me in pieces, with axes and knives and ropes. They were going to burn me alive. The cross, the cross, what would they do to me first? There was one thing the Gentiles might do to me worse than burning or rending. It was what was done to unprotected Jewish children who fell into the hands of priests or nuns. They might baptize me. That would be worse than death by torture. Rather would I drown in the divina than a drop of the baptismal water should touch my forehead. To be forced to kneel before the hideous images, to kiss the cross, sooner would I rush out to the mob that was passing and let them tear my vitals out. TO FORSWEAR THE ONE GOD, TO BOW BEFORE IDOLS, RATHER WOULD I BE SEIZED WITH THE PLAGUE, AND BE EATEN UP BY VERMIN. I WAS ONLY A LITTLE GIRL, AND NOT VERY BRAVE. LITTLE PAINS MADE ME ILL, AND I CRIED. BUT THERE WAS NO PAIN THAT I WOULD NOT BEAR, NO NONE, RATHER THAN SUBMIT TO BAPTISM. EVERY JEWISH CHILD HAD THAT FEELING. THERE WERE STORIES BY THE DOZEN OF JEWISH BOYS WHO WERE KIDNAPPED BY THE TSAR'S AGENTS, AND BROUGHT UP IN Gentiles' FAMILIES. TILL THEY WERE OLD ENOUGH TO ENTER THE ARMY, WHERE THEY SERVED TILL FORTY YEARS OF AGE. AND IN ALL THOSE YEARS THE PRIESTS TRIED, BY BRIBES AND DAILY TORTURES, TO FORCE THEM TO ACCEPT BAPTISM, BUT IN VAIN. THIS WAS IN THE TIME OF NICHOLAS I. BUT MEN WHO HAD BEEN THROUGH THIS SERVICE WERE NO OLDER THAN MY GRANDFATHER, WHEN I WAS A LITTLE GIRL, AND THEY TOLD THEIR EXPERIENCES WITH THEIR OWN LIPS, AND ONE KNEW IT WAS TRUE, AND IT BROKE ONE'S HEART WITH PAIN AND PRIDE. Some of these soldiers of Nicholas, as they were called, were taken as little boys of seven or eight, snatched from their mother's laps. They were carried to distant villages, where their friends could never trace them, and turned over to some dirty, brutal peasant, who used them like slaves, and kept them with the pigs. No two were ever left together, and they were given false names, so that they were entirely cut off from their own world." AND THEN THE LONELY CHILD WAS TURNED OVER TO THE PRIESTS, AND HE WAS FLOGGED AND STARVED AND TERRIFIED, A LITTLE HELPLESS BOY WHO CRIED FOR HIS MOTHER, BUT STILL HE REFUSED TO BE BAPTIZED. THE PRIESTS PROMISED HIM GOOD THINGS TO EAT, AND FINE CLOTHES, AND FREEDOM FROM LABOR, BUT THE BOY TURNED AWAY, AND SAID HIS PRAYERS SECRETLY, THE HEBREW PRAYERS. AS HE GREW OLDER, SEVERER TORTURES WERE INVENTED FOR HIM. STILL HE REFUSED BAPTISM. BY THIS TIME HE HAD FORGOTTEN HIS MOTHER'S FACE, And of his prayers, perhaps only the Shema remained in his memory. But he was a Jew, and nothing would make him change. After he entered the army, he was bribed with promises of promotions and honors. He remained a private, and endured the cruelest discipline. When he was discharged at the age of forty, he was a broken man, without a home, without a clue to his origin. And he spent the rest of his life wandering among Jewish settlements, searching for his family— hiding the scars of torture under his rags, begging his way from door to door. If he were one who had broken down under the cruel torments, and allowed himself to be baptized for the sake of a respite, the church never let him go again, no matter how loudly he protested that he was still a Jew. If he was caught practicing Jewish rites, he was subjected to the severest punishment. My father knew of one who was taken as a small boy, who never yielded to the priests under the most hideous tortures. As he was a very bright boy, the priests were particularly eager to convert him. They tried him with bribes that would appeal to his ambition. They promised to make a great man of him, a general, a noble. The boy turned away and said his prayers. Then they tortured him, and threw him into a cell, and when he lay asleep from exhaustion, the priest came and baptized him. When he awoke, they told him he was a Christian, "'and brought him the crucifix to kiss. "'He protested, threw the crucifix from him, "'but they held him to it that he was a baptized Jew "'and belonged to the church, "'and the rest of his life he spent between the prison and the hospital, "'always clinging to his faith, "'saying the Hebrew prayers in defiance of his tormentors, "'and paying for it with his flesh. "'There were men in Polotsk whose faces made you old in a minute. "'They had served Nicholas I and come back unbaptized. "'The white church in the square— how did it look to them? I knew. I cursed the church in my heart every time I had to pass it, and I was afraid, afraid. On market days, when the peasants came to church, and the bells kept ringing by the hour, my heart was heavy in me, and I could find no rest. Even in my father's house I did not feel safe. The church bell boomed over the roofs of the houses, calling, calling, calling. I closed my eyes, and saw the people passing into the church. PEASANT women WITH BRIGHT EMBROIDERED APRONS AND GLASS BEADS, BAREFOOT LITTLE GIRLS WITH COLORED KERCHIEFS ON THEIR HEADS, BOYS WITH CAPS PULLED TOO FAR DOWN OVER THEIR FLAXEN HAIR, ROUGH MEN WITH plaited BASS SANDALS AND A ROPE AROUND THE WAIST, CROWDS OF THEM MOVING SLOWLY UP THE STEPS, CROSSING THEMSELVES AGAIN AND AGAIN, TILL THEY WERE SWALLOWED BY THE BLACK DOORWAY, AND ONLY THE BEGGARS WERE LEFT SQUATTING ON THE STEPS. BOOM! BOOM! WHAT ARE THE PEOPLE DOING IN THE DARK, with the waxen images, and the horrid crucifixes. Boom! 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 They are ringing the bell for me. Is it in the church they will torture me, when I refuse to kiss the cross? They ought not to have told me those dreadful stories. They were long past. We were living under the blessed new regime. Alexander the Third was no friend of the Jews. Still, he did not order little boys to be taken from their mothers, to be made into soldiers and Christians. Every man had to serve in the army for four years, and a Jewish recruit was likely to be treated with severity, no matter if his behavior were perfect, but that was little compared to the dreadful conditions of the old regime. The thing that really mattered was the necessity of breaking the Jewish laws of daily life while in the service. A soldier often had to eat trefa and work on Sabbath. He had to shave his beard and do reverence to Christian things. He could not attend daily services at the synagogue, His private devotions were disturbed by the jeers and insults of his coarse Gentile comrades. He might resort to all sorts of tricks and shams. Still, he was obliged to violate Jewish law. When he returned home, at the end of his term of service, he could not rid himself of the stigma of those enforced sins. For four years he had led the life of a Gentile. Piety alone was enough to make the Jews dread military service, but there were other things that made it a serious burden. Most men of twenty-one, the age of conscription, were already married and had children. During their absence, their families suffered, their business often was ruined. At the end of their term they were beggars. As beggars, too, they were sent home from their military post. If they happened to have a good uniform at the time of their dismissal, it was stripped from them, and replaced by a shabby one. They received a free ticket for the return journey, and a few copex a day for expenses. In this fashion they were hurried back into the pale, like escaped prisoners. The tsar was done with them. If within a limited time they were found outside the pale, they would be seized and sent home in chains. There were certain exceptions to the rule of compulsory service. The only son of a family was exempt, and certain others. In the physical examination preceding conscription, many were rejected on account of various faults. This gave the people the idea of inflicting injuries on themselves— so as to produce temporary deformities, on account of which they might be rejected at the examination. Men would submit to operations on their eyes, ears, or limbs, which caused them horrible sufferings, in the hope of escaping the service. If the operation was successful, the patient was rejected by the examining officers, and in a short time he was well and a free man. Often, however, the deformity intended to be temporary proved incurable, so that there were many men in Polotsk blind of one eye, or hard of hearing, or lame, as a result of these secret practices. But these things were easier to bear than the memory of four years in the Tsar's service. Sons of rich fathers could escape service without leaving any marks on their persons. It was always possible to bribe conscription officers. This was a dangerous practice. It was not the officers who suffered most in case the negotiations leaked out, but no respectable family would let a son be taken as a recruit till it had made every effort to save him. My grandfather nearly ruined himself to buy his sons out of service, and my mother tells thrilling anecdotes of her younger brother's life, who for years lived in hiding, under assumed names, and in various disguises, till he had passed the age of liability for service. If it were cowardice that made the Jews shrink from military service, they would not inflict on themselves physical tortures greater than any that threatened them in the army, and which often left them maimed for life. If it were avarice, the fear of losing the gains from their business for four years, they would not empty their pockets and sell their houses and sink into debt on the chance of successfully bribing the Tsar's agents. The Jewish recruit dreaded, indeed, brutality and injustice at the hands of officers and comrades. He feared for his family, which he left, often enough, as dependence on the charity of relatives. But the fear of an unholy life was greater than all other fears. I know, for I remember my cousin who was taken as a soldier. Everything had been done to save him. Money had been spent freely. My uncle did not stop at his unmarried daughter's portion, when everything else was gone. My cousin had also submitted to some secret treatment— some devastating drug administered for months before the examination. But the effects were not pronounced enough, and he was passed. For the first few weeks his company was stationed in Polotsk. I saw my cousin drill on the square, carrying a gun, on a Sabbath. I felt unholy, as if I had sinned the sin in my own person. It was easy to understand why mothers of conscript sons fasted and wept and prayed and worried themselves to their graves. There was a man in our town called David the Substitute, because he had gone as a soldier in another stead, he himself being exempt. He did it for a sum of money. I suppose his family was starving, and he saw a chance to provide for them for a few years. But it was a sinful thing to do, to go as a soldier and be obliged to live like a Gentile, of his own free will. And David knew how wicked it was, for he was a pious man at heart. When he returned from service, he was aged and broken, bowed down with the sense of his sins. And he set himself a penance, which was to go through the streets every Sabbath morning, calling the people to prayer. Now this was a hard thing to do, because David labored bitterly all the week, exposed to the weather, summer or winter, and on Sabbath morning there was nobody so tired and lame and sore as David. Yet he forced himself to leave his bed before it was yet daylight, and go from street to street, all over Polotsk, CALLING ON THE PEOPLE TO WAKE AND GO TO PRAYER. MANY A SABBATH MORNING I AWOKE WHEN DAVID CALLED, AND LAY LISTENING TO HIS VOICE AS IT PASSED AND DIED OUT, AND IT WAS SO SAD THAT IT HURT AS BEAUTIFUL MUSIC HURTS. I WAS GLAD TO FEEL MY SISTER LYING BESIDE ME, FOR IT WAS LONELY IN THE GRAY DAWN, WITH ONLY DAVID AND ME AWAKE, AND GOD WAITING FOR THE PEOPLE'S PRAYERS. THE GENTILES USED TO WONDER AT US BECAUSE WE CARED SO MUCH ABOUT RELIGIOUS THINGS about food and Sabbath, and teaching the children Hebrew. They were angry with us for our obstinacy, as they called it, and mocked us, and ridiculed the most sacred things. There were wise Gentiles who understood. These were educated people, like Fedora Pavlovna, who made friends with their Jewish neighbors. They were always respectful, and openly admired some of our ways. But most of the Gentiles were ignorant and distrustful and spiteful. They would not believe that there was any good in our religion." and, of course, we dared not teach them, because we should be accused of trying to convert them, and that would be the end of us. Oh, if they could only understand. Vanka caught me on the street one day, and pulled my hair, and called me names, and all of a sudden I asked myself, Why? Why? A thing I had stopped asking years before. I was so angry that I could have punished him. For one moment I was not afraid to hit back. But this Why why, broke out in my heart, and I forgot to revenge myself. It was so wonderful. Well, there were no words in my head to say it, but it meant that Vanka abused me only because he did not understand. If he could feel with my heart, if he could be a little Jewish boy for one day, I thought, he would know, he would know. If he could understand about David, the substitute now, without being told, as I understood— if he could wake in my place on Sabbath morning and feel his heart break in him with a strange pain because a Jew had dishonored the law of Moses and God was bending down to pardon him, oh, why could I not make Vanka understand? I was so sorry that my heart hurt me worse than Vanka's blows. My anger and my courage were gone. Vanka was throwing stones at me now from his mother's doorway, and I continued on my errand, but I did not hurry. THE THING THAT HURT ME MOST I COULD NOT RUN AWAY FROM. THERE WAS ONE THING THE GENTILES ALWAYS UNDERSTOOD, AND THAT WAS MONEY. THEY WOULD TAKE ANY KIND OF BRIBE AT ANY TIME. PEACE COST SO MUCH A YEAR IN POLOTSK. IF YOU DID NOT KEEP ON GOOD TERMS WITH YOUR Gentile NEIGHBORS, THEY HAD A HUNDRED WAYS OF MOLESTING YOU. IF YOU CHASED THEIR PIGS WHEN THEY CAME ROOTING UP YOUR GARDEN, OR OBJECTED TO THEIR CHILDREN MALTREATING YOUR CHILDREN, THEY MIGHT COMPLAIN AGAINST YOU TO THE POLICE, "'stuffing their case with false accusations and false witnesses. "'If you had not made friends with the police, the case might go to court, "'and there you lost before the trial was called, "'unless the judge had reason to befriend you. "'The cheapest way to live in Polotsk was to pay as you went along. "'Even a little girl understood that, in Polotsk. "'Perhaps your parents were in business, usually they were, "'as almost everybody kept store.' and you heard a great deal about the chief of police, and excise officers, and other agents of the Tsar. Between the Tsar, whom you had never seen, and the policeman, whom you knew too well, you pictured to yourself a long row of officials of all sorts, all with their palms stretched out to receive your father's money. You knew your father hated them all, but you saw him smile and bend as he filled those greedy palms. You did the same in your petty way, when you saw Vanka coming toward you on a lonely street, AND YOU HELD OUT TO HIM THE CORE OF THE APPLE YOU HAD BEEN CHEWING, AND FORCED YOUR UNWILLING LIPS INTO A SMILE. IT HURT, THAT FALSE SMILE. IT MADE YOU FEEL BLACK INSIDE. IN YOUR FATHER'S PARLOR HUNG A LARGE COLORED PORTRAIT OF ALEXANDER Third. THE TSAR WAS A CRUEL TYRANT. OH, IT WAS WHISPERED WHEN DOORS WERE LOCKED AND SHUTTERS TIGHTLY BARRED. AT NIGHT HE WAS A TITUS, A Haman, A SWORN FOE OF ALL JEWS. AND YET HIS PORTRAIT WAS SEEN IN A PLACE OF HONOR IN YOUR FATHER'S HOUSE. YOU KNEW WHY. IT LOOKED WELL WHEN POLICE OR GOVERNMENT OFFICERS CAME ON BUSINESS. YOU WENT OUT TO PLAY ONE MORNING, AND SAW A LITTLE KNOT OF PEOPLE GATHERED AROUND A LAMP-POST. THERE WAS A NOTICE ON IT, A NEW ORDER FROM THE CHIEF OF POLICE. YOU PUSHED INTO THE CROWD, AND STARED AT THE PLACARD, BUT YOU COULD NOT READ. A WOMAN WITH A RAGGED shawl LOOKED DOWN UPON YOU, AND SAID, WITH A BITTER KIND OF SMILE, REJOICE! REJOICE, LITTLE GIRL! THE CHIEF OF POLICE BIDS YOU REJOICE! there shall be a pretty flag flying from every housetop today because it is the tsar's birthday and we must celebrate come and watch the poor people pawn their samovars and candlesticks to raise money for a pretty flag it is a holiday little girl rejoice you know the woman is mocking you are familiar with the quality of that smile but you accept the hint and go and watch the people buy their flags your cousin keeps a dry goods store where you have a fine view of the proceedings There is a crowd around the counter, and your cousin and the assistant are busily measuring off lengths of cloth, red and blue and white. "'How much does it take?' somebody asks. "'May I know no more of sin than I know of flags?' another replies. "'How is it put together? Do you have to have all three colors?' One customer puts down a few kopecks on the counter, saying, "'Give me a piece of flag. This is all the money I have. Give me the red and the blue. I'll tear up my shirt for the white.' you know it is no joke. The flag must show from every house, or the owner will be dragged to the police station, to pay a fine of twenty-five rubles. What happened to the old woman who lives in that tumble-down shanty over the way? It was that other time when flags were ordered up, because the Grand Duke was to visit Polotsk. The old woman had no flag, and no money. She hoped the policeman would not notice her miserable hut. But he did, the vigilant one, and he went up and kicked the door open with his great boot, and he took the last pillow from the bed, and sold it, and hoisted a flag above the rotten roof. I knew the old woman well, with her one watery eye and her crumpled hands. I often took a plate of soup to her from our kitchen. There was nothing but rags left on her bed, when the policeman had taken the pillow. The tsar always got his dues, no matter if it ruined a family. There was a poor locksmith who owed the Tsar three hundred rubles, because his brother had escaped from Russia before serving his term in the army. There was no such fine for Gentiles, only for Jews, and the whole family was liable. Now the locksmith never could have so much money, and he had no valuables to pawn. The police came and attached his household goods, everything he had, including his young bride's trousseau, and the sale of the goods brought thirty-five rubles. After a year's time the police came again, looking for the balance of the Tsar's dues. They put their seal on everything they found. The bride was in bed with her first baby, a boy. The circumcision was to be next day. The police did not leave a sheet to wrap the child in when he is handed up for the operation. Many bitter sayings came to your ears if you were a Jewish little girl in Polotsk. It is a false world, you heard, and you know it was so, looking at the Tsar's portrait and at the flags. Never tell a police officer the truth, was another saying, and you knew it was good advice. That fine of three hundred rubles was a sentence of lifelong slavery for the poor locksmith, unless he freed himself by some trick. As fast as he could collect a few rags and sticks, the police would be after them. He might hide under a false name, if he could get away from Polotsk on a false passport, or he might bribe the proper officials to issue a false certificate of the missing brother's death. Only by false means could he secure peace for himself and his family, as long as the Tsar was after his dues. It was bewildering to hear how many kinds of duties and taxes we owed the Tsar. We paid taxes on our houses, and taxes on the rents from the houses, taxes on our business, taxes on our profits. I am not sure whether there were taxes on our losses. The town collected taxes, and the county, and the central government— and the chief of police we had always with us. There were taxes for public works, but rotten pavements went on rotting year after year, and when a bridge was to be built, special taxes were levied. A bridge, by the way, was not always a public highway. A railroad bridge across the Divina, while open to the military, could be used by the people only by individual permission. My uncle explained to me all about the excise duties on tobacco. Tobacco being a source of government revenue— There was a heavy tax on it. Cigarettes were taxed at every step of their process. The tobacco was taxed separately, and the paper, and the mouthpiece, and on the finished product an additional tax was put. There was no tax on the smoke. The Tsar must have overlooked it. Business really did not pay when the price of goods was so swollen by taxes that the people could not buy. The only way to make business pay was to cheat, cheat the government of part of the duties, But playing tricks on the Tsar was dangerous, with so many spies watching his interests. People who sold cigarettes without the government seal got more gray hairs than banknotes out of their business. The constant risk, the worry, the dread of a police raid in the night, and the ruinous fines, in case of detection, left very little margin of profit or comfort to the dealer in contraband goods. "'But what can one do?' the people said, with the shrug of the shoulders that expresses the helplessness of the pale what can one do one must live it was not easy to live with such bitter competition as a congestion of population made inevitable there were 10 times as many stores as there should have been 10 times as many tailors cobblers barbers tinsmiths a gentile if he failed in polotsk could go elsewhere where there was less competition a jew could make the circle of the pale only to find the same conditions as at home Outside the pale, he could only go to certain designated localities, on payment of prohibitive fees, augmented by a constant stream of bribes, and even then he lived at the mercy of the local chief of police. Artisans had the right to reside outside of the pale, on fulfillment of certain conditions. This sounded easy to me, when I was a little girl, till I realized how it worked— There was a cap-maker who had duly qualified, by passing an examination and paying for his trade papers, to live in a certain city. The chief of police suddenly took it into his head to impeach the genuineness of his papers. The cap-maker was obliged to travel to St. Petersburg, where he had qualified in the first place, to repeat the examination. He spent the savings of years in petty bribes, trying to hasten the process, but was detained ten months by bureaucratic red tape. When at length he returned to his home town, he found a new chief of police, installed during his absence, who discovered a new flaw in the papers he had just obtained, and expelled him from the city. If he came to Polotsk, there were then eleven cap-makers, where only one could make a living. Merchants fared like the artisans. They, too, could buy the right of residence outside the pale, permanent or temporary, on conditions that gave them no real security." I was proud to have an uncle who was a merchant of the First Guild, but it was very expensive for my uncle. He had to pay so much a year for the title, and a certain percentage on the profits from his business. This gave him the right to travel on business outside the pale twice a year, for not more than six months in all. If he were found outside the pale after his permit expired, he had to pay a fine that exceeded all he had gained by his journey, perhaps. I used to picture my uncle on his Russian travels, hurrying, hurrying to finish his business in the limited time, while a policeman marched behind him, ticking off the days and counting up the hours. That was a foolish fancy, but some of the things that were done in Russia really were very funny. There were things in Polotsk that made you laugh with one eye and weep with the other, like a clown. During an epidemic of cholera, the city officials, suddenly becoming energetic, opened stations for the distribution of disinfectants to the people. A quarter of the population was dead when they began, and most of the dead were buried, while some lay decaying in deserted houses. The survivors, some of them crazy from horror, stole through the empty streets, avoiding one another, till they came to the appointed stations, where they pushed and crowded to get their little bottles of carbolic acid. Many died from fear in those horrible days, but some must have died from laughter, for only the Gentiles were allowed to receive the disinfectant. Poor Jews, who had nothing but their new-made graves, were driven away from the stations. Perhaps it was wrong of us to think of our Gentile neighbors as a different species of beings from ourselves. But such madness as that did not help to make them more human in our eyes. It was easier to be friends with the beasts in a barn than with some of the Gentiles. The cow and the goat and the cat responded to kindness, and remembered which of the housemaids was generous and which was cross. The Gentiles made no distinctions. A Jew was a Jew, to be hated, and spat upon, and used spitefully. The only Gentiles, besides few of the intelligent kind, who did not habitually look upon us with hate and contempt, were the stupid peasants from the country, who were hardly human themselves. They lived in filthy huts together with their swine, and all they cared for was how to get something to eat. It was not their fault. The land laws made them so poor that they had to sell themselves to fill their bellies, What help was there for us in the good will of such wretched slaves? For a case of vodka you could buy up a whole village of them. They trembled before the meanest townsmen, and at a sign from a long haired priest they would sharpen their axes against us. The Gentiles had their excuse for their malice. They said our merchants and money-lenders preyed upon them, and our shopkeepers gave false measure. People who want to defend the Jews ought never to deny this. Yes, I say, we cheated the Gentiles whenever we dared, because it was the only thing to do. Remember how the Tsar was always sending us commands, you shall not do this, and you shall not do that, until there was little left that we might honestly do, except pay tribute and die? There he had us cooped up, thousands of us where only hundreds could live, and every means of living taxed to the utmost. When there are too many wolves in the prairie, they begin to prey upon each other. We, starving captives of the pale, we did as do the hungry brutes. But our humanity showed in our discrimination between our victims. Whenever we could, we spared our own kind, directing against our racial foes the cunning wiles which our bitter need invented. Is not that the code of war? Encamped in the midst of the enemy, we could practice no other. A Jew could hardly exist in business unless he developed a dual conscience, which allowed him to do to the Gentile what he would call a sin against a fellow Jew. Such spiritual deformities are self-explained in the stepchildren of the Tsar. A glance over the statutes of the pale leaves you wondering that the Russian Jews have not lost all semblance to humanity. A favorite complaint against us was that we were greedy for gold. Why could not the Gentiles see the whole truth where they saw half? Greedy for profits we were, eager for bargains, for savings— intent on squeezing the utmost out of every business transaction. But why? Did not the Gentiles know the reason? Did they not know what price we had to pay for the air we breathed? If a Jew and a Gentile kept store side by side, the Gentile could content himself with smaller profits. He did not have to buy permission to travel in the interests of his business. He did not have to pay three hundred rubles fine if his son evaded military service. He was saved the expense of hushing inciters of pogroms. Police favor was retailed at a lower price to him than to the Jew. His nature did not compel him to support schools and charities. It cost nothing to be a Christian. On the contrary, it brought rewards and immunities. To be a Jew was a costly luxury, the price of which was either money or blood. Is it any wonder that we hoarded our pennies? What his shield is to the soldier in battle, that was the rubble to the Jew in the pale. THE KNOWLEDGE OF SUCH THINGS AS I AM TELLING LEAVES MARKS UPON THE FLESH AND SPIRIT. I REMEMBER LITTLE CHILDREN IN POLOTSK, WITH OLD, OLD FACES AND EYES GLAZED WITH SECRETS. I KNEW HOW TO DODGE AND CRINGE AND DISSEMBLE BEFORE I KNEW THE NAMES OF THE SEASONS. AND I HAD PLENTY OF TIME TO PONDER ON THESE THINGS, BECAUSE I WAS SO IDLE. IF THEY HAD LET ME GO TO SCHOOL NOW—BUT OF COURSE THEY DIDN'T. THERE WAS NO FREE SCHOOL FOR GIRLS. And even if your parents were rich enough to send you to a private school, you could not go very far. At the high school, which was under government control, Jewish children were admitted in limited numbers, only ten to every hundred, and even if you were among the lucky ones, you had your troubles. The tutor who prepared you talked all the time about the examinations you would have to pass, till you were scared— "'You heard on all sides that the brightest Jewish children were turned down "'if the examining officers did not like the turn of their noses. "'You went up to be examined with the other Jewish children. Your heart heavy about that matter of your nose. "'There was a special examination for the Jewish candidates, of course. "'A nine-year-old Jewish child had to answer questions "'that a thirteen-year-old Gentile was hardly expected to understand. "'But that did not matter so much. "'You had been prepared for the thirteen-year-old test.' You found the questions quite easy. You wrote your answers triumphantly. And you received a low rating. And there was no appeal. I used to stand in the doorway of my father's store, munching an apple that did not taste good any more, and watch the pupils going home from school in twos and threes, the girls in neat brown dresses and black aprons and little stiff hats, the boys in trim uniforms with many buttons. They had ever so many books in the satchels on their backs. They would take them out at home, and read and write, and learn all sorts of interesting things. They looked to me like beings from another world than mine. But those whom I envied had their own troubles, as I often heard. Their school life was one struggle against injustice from instructors, spiteful treatment from fellow students, and insults from everybody. Those who, by heroic efforts and transcendent good luck, successfully finished the course, found themselves against a new wall, if they wished to go on. They were turned down at the universities, which admitted them in the ratio of three Jews to a hundred Gentiles, under the same debarring entrance conditions as at the high school, especially rigorous examinations, dishonest markings, or arbitrary rulings without disguise. No, the Tsar did not want us in the schools. I heard from my mother of a different state of affairs, at the time when her brothers were little boys. The Tsar of those days had a bright idea. He said to his ministers, Let us educate the people, let us win over those Jews through the public schools, instead of allowing them to persist in their narrow Hebrew learning, which teaches them no love for their monarch. Force has failed with them, the unwilling converts return to their old ways whenever they dare. Let us try education. Perhaps peaceable conversion of the Jews was not the Tsar's only motive when he opened public schools everywhere, and compelled parents to send their boys for instruction. Perhaps he just wanted to be good, and really hoped to benefit the country. But to the Jews the public schools appeared as a trap-door to the abyss of apostasy. The instructors were always Christians, the teaching was Christian, and the regulations of the schoolroom, as to hours, costume, and manners, were often in opposition to Jewish practices. The public school interrupted the boys' sacred studies in the Hebrew school, "'Where would you look for pious Jews "'after a few generations of boys "'brought up by Christian teachers?' "'Plainly, the Tsar was after the souls "'of the Jewish children. "'The church door gaped for them "'at the end of the school course, "'and all good Jews rose up against the schools, "'and by every means, fair or foul, "'kept their boys away. "'The official appointed to keep the register of boys "'for school purposes waxed rich on the bribes "'paid him by anxious parents "'who kept their sons in hiding.' After a while, the wise Tsar changed his mind, or he died, probably he did both, and the schools were closed, and the Jewish boys perused their Hebrew books in peace, wearing the sacred fringes in plain sight, and never polluting their mouths with a word of Russian. And then it was the Jews who changed their minds, some of them. They wanted to send their children to school, to learn histories and sciences, because they had discovered that there was good in such things as well as in the sacred law. These people were called progressive, but they had no chance to progress. All the tsars that came along persisted in the old idea, that for the Jew no door should be opened, no door out of the pale, no door out of their medievalism. End of chapter 1